Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant, creative consultant rather, Oliver Camacho, and co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. All right, tonight our annual Halloween Spooktacular returns. We share those scary opera moments that keep us up at night on October 31st. But first, we go inside the huddle with uh, stage director Paul Curran. He's currently directing Tchaikovsky's Iolanta at Chicago Opera Theater. We'll start by asking him about his take on this Russian gem of an opera. Then later, it's the two-minute drill. You get everything you need to know from the past week in opera land with our team's hot takes on those stories. And of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. And uh, without further ado, Tobias Wright, how's it going? Everything is going well. I think... We're obligated to mention that the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, but like, does anybody actually care? I mean, it's, it's Boston pastime. So. <laughs> that is so rude. A real hot take from uh, from Matt Cummings there, and I know, uh, really serving him up fresh. Any just hot for takes you. from Oliver Camacho in the other room? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to bust your uh, baseballs because uh, you know I love <laughs> you, but um, Weston, you know George's script at the beginning of the uh, of. Of the intro is America's talk radio show about opera. A little bit of space, period. Not opera period. Because it makes it sound like opera menstruation. <laughs> I did notice that as I said it, which is here? why I couldn't say anything after Menstruation? <laughs> hey, I'm just filling just in here. It. This is what happens when when all, when George is gone, the, uh, the mice will play. I think that's how the saying mm-hmm. goes. Well, let's get into some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Award-winning director Paul Curran is a graduate in directing from the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. He was the artistic director of the Norwegian National Opera from 2007 to 2011. He's directed new productions around the world and is now directing Tchaikovsky's Iolanta at Chicago Opera Theater. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. So uh, first and foremost, I think the, uh, this is the pressing question on everyone's mind. October 31st is coming up. What is the scariest opera ever made? The scariest opera ever made is what I've been asked to do. I don't have a budget for <laughs> and I can't get a direct <laughs> flight to that city, and half the cast have canceled. That's the scariest opera story ever. Oh, I'm getting chills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have to sleep tonight. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, though, since you're here, and like we're all uh, champing at the bit to like ask our questions, but... 
just because George, who is our producer and our main host, who's not here today, he's always extolling the virtues of the German system. And we were having a little chat in the car about what it's actually like to work in Germany. Can you share your insight about the rehearsal process in America versus Germany? Sure. Well, Germany, the, the main thing to remember about the German system is that it's called a repertoire system, which means they play more than one opera at, at a time. So any theater will have several shows going on uh, during a week, which means several shows have to be rehearsed during a week. The U.S. does what's called a stagione, a season system. So that's like, you know, like we're doing. We do the one opera, we rehearse it, we put it on, they take it off, they do another. The Lyric Opera here in Chicago does a kind of semi-stagione where there's two operas, sometimes three operas in the repertoire, but never more than that. Like Vienna State Opera is a different opera every night, practically the whole month. Uh, so the problem with that is, is when you show up to rehearse, as they say things to you like, oh, Mr. Curran, we're giving you eight or ten weeks of rehearsal, isn't this? luxurious and I'm like well everybody's going to be bored out of their skull <laughs> listening to me witter on for the next eight or ten weeks and then you realize why it's because oh baritone A is actually singing Wolfram tomorrow night in Tannhäuser and soprano B is doing the second lady in the magic flute but then the next night she's singing Zemele and in three nights time she's singing a Rhine Maiden in, in Das Rheingold and you're like so that means I can't have them to rehearse no you can't because the house members, the ensemble members, are all obliged by contract to do lots of different shows. And they, they're not freelance. They don't have a choice in the matter. Um, so it really slows down the process. I also feel the problem for me is when you have a month, like we have a, three weeks, this is a one-act opera, Yolanta. Mm -hmm. uh, but normally you get like a month, sometimes five weeks for a long piece. Um, there's a time constraint on that. And what it does is it makes you creative. And the, the pressure that you have to get to the opening night really helps lift the curtain and really helps mm. the singers sort of find their character and find the relationships and all that. When you have, can you imagine rehearsing something for 10 weeks? No. The energy just <laughs> falls right through <laughs> the floor. Um, and you can tell often in a piece. Here's the bizarre thing I find in Germany. They will do a revival of a piece. I remember going to the Wiener Staatsoper to see Goethe Dämmerung, you know, five hours of opera they had rehearsed it for three days. And you could tell. <laughs> That's <laughs> a big difference. Yeah. yeah, it was a little bit of a difference. <laughs> I want to try to sneak in two more questions on this path, and I'll, I'll pass it over to the team. Um, are there some places or combinations of uh, artists slash uh, conductor slash producer that make it a really a real joy to work with? And oh, what are absolutely. those combinations? What are those things, those elements? That make well, the really combination special? of people are, are those mm. that are interested in creating what opera is, which is music theater. Mm -hmm. It's music. It's not a concert. I'm sorry, with all due respect mm -hmm. to certain colleagues of mine. It, it's not a concert. It's also not a recording. We're not going to get every 30-second note rest in somewhere when a singer's trying to get a breath for something. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen. Um, so the, the combination is when you have a conductor such as Donald Ronicles, who is hugely interested in not only the musical values, but absolutely in the, the theatrical values of what you're doing, or uh, Lydia Jankowska, who's here at COT. Lydia's at every rehearsal. She was not there today because she was off doing, you know. Like the refugee orchestra yeah, project or something. Yeah, orchestra project. <laughs> and she's there, you know, she's flying the flag the whole time. Yeah. But she's at rehearsals every day. She is a very, very avid and vocal member of 
uh, questions and decisions. And she's a, she's a great musician on top of she's that. She's a mm-hmm. phenomenal musician. She's also born in Russia, so R- Russian's her, actually her native language. Not that you would ever know. But th- you, you have a combination of people that are interested in it. And also, I, I remember working at Covent Garden years ago with Gennady Rozdzwenski, and we had to put a new soprano into the Golden Cockerel, and the soprano was a bit nervous, and she was like, oh, maestro, what do you want me to do? And, and he said, oh, my dear, you will sing, we will play, and we will make music. And the soprano was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What's the tempo? And he said, I have never met, I don't know. You sing, I'll listen, we'll react. It's like jazz, darling. You just sing. (laughs) (laughs) And he did, and it was utterly phenomenal. Mm. I've just did a terrible experience with a conductor who was all about the opposite of that. It was his way or no way, and every singer had to sing exactly the way, whether you're one cast or the other. didn't matter Mm. for the role. There was one way of conducting it, one way of singing it, and you had to fit that in. And that was essentially uncollaborative and, and not very productive. Have you ever had a production that had maybe budgetary constraints or capacity com- constraints or you know, space constraints that forced you to rethink your concept and the result ended up actually being a better product than you would imagine? Well, a better product, rarely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. When did you ever go shopping and say, you know what, I've only got $50, but hey, Nordstrom, what are you going to do for me? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to buy for $50 of Nordstrom? You won't get underwear for that. Um, no, it's always a, it always gives you uh, uh, constraints. But there's a few times, for example, um, I did this piece called Schwander the Bagpiper by Weinberger. If you haven't listened to this, people, listen to this beautiful opera. It's a hilarious opera about a peasant man that eventually goes to meet the devil and the devil's this kind of hilarious pain in the butt who cheats at playing cards. It's, it's very silly. But it's great fun. It's charming music. Well, we had no, the theater had no money, and there was a new intendance in the theater in Augsburg in Germany, and she said, your budget is 19,000 euros. Well, most people can't do a kitchen for 19,000 euros. <laughs> mm-hmm. Never mind, do a whole opera. But I said, we have the resources of the theater? Yeah. What we did was we used the stage machinery. I basically stripped the theater bare, and we used the stage machinery, and we based it all around like it was a movie studio, and they were making a movie. So people came up on lifts and disappeared down on lifts and s- swung on and off, and, and it, it really worked. And then there was another, <laughs> I don't know if it was a better solution. Here at the Lyric, um, about 10 years ago or so, I did Die Frau in Schatten, uh, the mm. huge, monstrously difficult Strauss piece. Um, and at the time, they gave us a budget. We went away. We did this, we thought, rather fantastic LED-inspired. We'd just been to Tokyo, so we'd seen all these monstrous, phenomenal LED screens on walls, on the floor, in the toilet, you name it, it was everywhere. <laughs> and we were thinking, we're going to do it like that. And we came with this wonderful model, and everybody said, it's marvelous, we love it. We just cut the budget by $250,000. <sighs> so that was the end of that. So we went back to and said, well, couldn't you have told us before we got on the plane? Uh, so we went back to London, and we rethought, and we came up with the idea that, that you saw here. But... Um, I, d- I think sometimes it makes you, it certainly makes you rethink, and sometimes it does make you think a little, a little better. Hmm. I've just, I'm just to finish my thought on this. It's like I've seen some maybe choreographers or directors who have been given a lot of money, and their work suffers for it. Like, yeah, you know, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, um, give a teenager a, you know, a $5,000 check and take them to Nordstrom. Hmm. What are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. They're going to go wild. Of course you're going to yeah. go wild. Handbags, gloves, everybody's yeah. going to go mad. Um, the constraints of a budget are to do with budgets are all to do with the theater that you're working in, the city you're working in, what their structure is, what their infrastructure is. Because when you get a budget, 
and depends on the country and the city you're in. You don't know if that budget, for example, involves labor costs. So it might look, oh, we've given you half a million, you're like marvelous. So you realize that a good third of that's going to go in labor costs. Whereas if you're in an Italian theater and they're all in the theater, then there's no labor costs because they're all salaried. I, uh, Paul, I'd like to go back a little bit to what you were sure. talking about with Oliver about the, you know, the collaborative experience. Uh, it, can, can you think of anything about some of the singers or artists that you've worked with that really stands out to you about what was so great to work with them? You know, what is it in a, in an, a star of your show that you look for as something that's really special? Well, yeah, I mean, I've, if you work with, for example, I've, I've worked with uh, Maria Gulegina, um, Anna Notrebko, who, um, Joyce DiDonato, to mention three starry ladies. Uh, Joyce is maybe a very good example where Joyce can't, you can't bore Joyce DiDonato. She's got too interesting and active a mind. She'll run rings around you if you <laughs> even attempt to bore the woman. So you need to come and you need to meet as equals. And what Joyce will do is, we did uh, uh, La Donna del Lago, the Rossini piece, um, is that Joyce is not the sort of lady that will do something just because you say, can you stand over there? She, like a proper actor, she says, why? Why am I doing And the more you give them a motivation, the more you give them an idea as to why the character is doing this, the more they invest. And quite frankly, the better the singing becomes. Because the, I remember saying to her, oh, is this too busy? What I gave her, and she said, oh, God, no, no, give me something to do so I'm not thinking about singing. <laughs> and that's wonderful because it frees up the voice when you're not thinking technically. The same with Maria Gulegina. I did Tosca with uh, Gulegina. Um, everybody said she's quite a testing lady. She's, she can be quite a difficult lady. I thought she was absolutely glorious. We did nothing but roar with laughter <laughs> in rehearsal and did some very, very serious work. This woman had sung Tosca over 500 times in her life. I'm doing it for the first time. I've got a lot to learn from this lady, right? But Absolutely, she equally yeah. was saying to me, this, like I gave her this idea, it was a, a 1930s production, and in the interrogation with Scarpia, when he's saying, come on, where is he? And I, I said to her, go into your, to buy time, go into your purse, take out a cigarette and light up a cigarette, but your lighter doesn't work. A trick you'll see in uh, Iolanta, by the way, we recycle all the time. <laughs> um, so she was doing, and, and of course she was getting pissed off at this. I can't, I can't, and eventually he has the lighter because it's on the desk, and she throws a cigarette at him. She'd never thought of that as a possible moment of enormous tension in Tosca. The fact that she was ready to do it, the fact that she absorbed it and she took it and she ran with it, and then the magic of Gulegina is she puts it in and through her voice. Mm. That made what people said, oh, the cigarette moment. Wow, I, I just couldn't, I thought she was going to throw the lighter at him. So that, that, that's a, a good example of how, how you collaborate. With Absolutely. Somebody. And if you, if, you, if you can tell me a little bit more about, uh, when, what about working with younger singers, up and coming singers who are these young, young artist programs, or et, et cetera. Uh, what is it that you think people really need to focus on in order to come to the table ready to go? That okay. you, yeah, right. So most people are studying voice, right? And you study voice for. Years and years and years and years and years and years. Opera is vocally based. Abs I am the first to say this is a vocal art form. But it is not only a vocal art form. You only need to read the letters of Giuseppe Verdi to Stripponi. You need to read what Wagner said. Cavalli way back in the day, Monteverdi, his pupil back in the day, were asking for singing actors. What I find is mm. missing, and I teach all over the world, and I teach all over the US, and I teach a lot, and I adore it. I'm, I'm passionate about teaching is I'm often quite surprised at the lack of skills that young singers leave a college or an institution, a conservatory yeah. with. Lack of skills, I mean, 
they're thinking only about the vocal production. They're thinking only about remembering the, the lines, the tempi, the dynamics and all of that. But nobody's discussed with them who the character is, why the character is doing, your basic Stanislavski and you know, who, what, when, mm. where, why stuff that any young actor would learn. Why aren't young singers learning that? Is it that hard? Mm. It's, it, if, <laughs> if you don't have that, I mean, go back to Gulagin and Joyce Didonato. These ladies are saying, why am I here? Why did I walk in this room? Mm-hmm. That is the basic principle of an actor that you will get with Judy Dench. Judy Dench will not walk into the room unless you, she says, why am I here? Mm-hmm. Why, is the, why did the character do this? It's exactly the same in the opera. So if you think of people that you find exciting stage animals, stage artists, Sondra Radvanovsky is a, a prime sure, example. Yeah. I, I did Trovatore with Sondra. This was terribly name droppy, isn't it? Yeah. I love <laughs> if you hear a clang, ladies and gentlemen, it's Paul Curran <laughs> dropping another name. <laughs> Um, Drink. <laughs> Everybody yeah. take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, is the, the, the point with her is that, again, you have this intense artist. But it's not just an intense vocal production. An artist like uh, uh, Radvanovsky understands that vocal tension, vocal production comes through the thought process that goes into how she's singing a Visidarti or, or Dolcimani duet or something like that. So that's what I think, going back to the, the teaching, is... Please, 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 in conservatories, give people proper and real ac- actual acting classes. Give them a class in which they're discussing a text. Give them a, cas- a class in improvisation. That's what I would ask for. I now, wanted you to, re- I'm sorry, I'm going to just, because he said something earlier that I wanted to, him to repeat for all of you. Can you tell me again about um, the singer and the aria by himself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was doing a show years ago, and there was this kid's, we were doing something that was a baritone and he i said so about the aria we're gonna blah 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 and he said oh no i'm on my own i, I just i'm alone i'm completely alone on the stage so and i don't need your help blocking yeah, i don't yet. need anything i'm just on, on my own and i was like you're on, oh really okay sure no problem and he said yeah why and i said well uh, who, who's that in front of you what do you mean and i said like all those people like in the, oh the orchestra oh yeah well they're there and i said oh, and <laughs> behind you who's behind you Oh, well, yeah, there's the chorus, I guess. Yeah, but there. But I'm, I'm, and I said, but you're on, you're, you do this alone. Yeah. And uh, you're in light in our photo spot and we can see you. Yeah. Who, who turns that on and off? Yeah. But I mean, you know, that, that's, that's just. And I said, and you still think you're alone. Mm. You still, I said, let's take everything out. Let's take the light away. Let's take the orchestra away. Let's take the chorus away. Let's take the guy who lifts the curtain away. Who are you? You're just some idiot singing in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you are. If you don't understand that you're part of a much greater mechanism, then you, you're entirely mistaken. You, you're not doing the correct job. All the great artists I've worked with all understand that they are the, the tip of an iceberg, but without everything underneath it, the pyramid, that it, they cannot do it because they will not be supported. You need that energy. I, always, I actually really agree with that. And people always say, well, why should I go see an opera? And I'm like, it's a miracle that it happens. There's <laughs> a million different parts moving in unison to make one thing happen, and that's the curtain going up. And so it's always a bit of a miracle. So I have a couple questions that I'd sure. like to ask you. Um, you've directed such a wide variety of shows mm-hmm. from composers that are literally centuries apart. Does your directive approach or picture painting change depending on what the show is and where it comes from? Well, yes, it does, because if you're doing a Monteverdi piece, it's almost entirely text-based, um, and also a text, by the way, that is rudeness beyond belief for right. the modern age. <laughs> Thrillingly, I did this Cavalli piece where there's a nurse who is played by a man 
that we know is basically a man in drag in the piece. And he's talking to a page who's played by a girl whom we know is actually supposed to be a boy. Very confusing. And he says this very, this nurse says this very strange thing. Do you like music? And the page says, yeah, it's kind of okay. And he says, would you like to bang on my drum? <laughs> <laughs> and the page says, this is the, a Cavalli piece called La <laughs> If you know what I mean. And the page says, well, I don't know if I'd like to bang on your drum. I think it's a bit slack <laughs> with use. <laughs> and the nurse basically says, I haven't had any complaints. So if you're doing that piece, you approach it in a very... It's a nurse, not me, Oliver. You're approaching it in a very different way from, for example, the, the soundscape that is Tristan and Isolde because you have to absolutely direct the action within the music that Wagner is painting with. Essentially, there's not much difference, but just the text of Tristan and Isolde is absolutely vital, of course. But they're great long, long. The opening of Act Three, for example, with that basses and cellos thing that mm -hmm. it begins with, that you need to create a story that you believe Wagner is setting up, which is the slow, slow, slow death of, of Tristan. So my approach is not really much different to, to everything. It's very much storytelling, whatever it is I'm doing. Um, but I will, in a Wagner piece or a Puccini piece, look more at the emotional. Uh, underscoring like a movie that the composer is asking me for. Sure. So then my follow-up to that is not a follow-up question at all. Um, <laughs> oh, very, but very intriguing. I hope to evade it entirely. Why, <laughs> please do. Why should young people today invest their time and money in seeing opera? If you like video games and if you like the drama, the high story, the, the swashbuckling madness and the, the sort of illogical crazy world that's the world of video games that can be any and all sorts of video games, you're gonna love opera because you have those high stakes and storytelling. You also have this music that is basically the movie world stole from the opera world. Tell me the last movie any of you guys saw that was not underscored. When did you ever see a movie that didn't have a scoring on it? I don't think this happened. Exactly. <laughs> and that comes from opera. So opera is, I, I think it's really about three things, opera. I think it's about, um, Religion, politics, and sex, hmm. when you boil everything down. Love's kind of a bit... You know, <laughs> a little bit. It's, it's a little spring. A lot more sex than love. <laughs> a lot but I think a young person should go and see it because it's stories about them. Tristan and Isolde. Tr Isolde's a teenager. She's mm -hmm. 16. It's the story, mainly the hmm. stories of young people and how young people are dealing with life and how the problems that they meet. It's, a, it's a, like video games. Um, video games are very extreme. You know, you're, sure. you're killing dragons or you're shooting in a thing. It always seems terribly violent. Not that opera's any different. But that extremity exists uh, in video games that also exists in the opera world. Um, and I think those Tosca's a prime example. Why wouldn't you go and see Tosca? This woman is in this cat and mouse game with this man who is a maniac, absolute maniac, that she knows is murdering her boyfriend and then, just because he's being a nice guy, decides to rape her just in the middle of everything. Just because, hey, why, why wouldn't we? And how does she deal with that? And how does she, she deal with that story? That's why I think you should go and see it, because I think it's passionate and thrilling. Now, of course, coming up, we have Chicago Opera Theater's production of Iolanta, which you are directing, which uh, opens on November 10th, I believe. Uh, you can buy your tickets at cot.org. Um, can you give us kind of a sneak preview of what you're going to be uh, doing with that particular piece? Well, uh, it's a fascinating piece of Yolanta because it was Tchaikovsky's last piece. It was premiered right. on the same night as The Nutcracker, which was quite common in the hmm. 19th century. 1893 it was written, and they, they did The Nutcracker first, then they did uh, Yolanta. 
It's a story of a blind girl who has been kept. I think it's a very contemporary story. It's a blind girl who has been kept in ignorance of her blindness and the fact she's a princess by her father. He's way, way, way overly protective. Ringing a bell, millennials. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm relating to it so hard. <laughs> it's, so she's way overprotected. And she, he bans the use of the words color, seeing, mm. anything like that. So she has a, even a vocabulary that has been completely stripped. So she's sort of in a gilded cage prison. This man comes in, this young man, can, she's betrothed to somebody, this young man comes in, and this young man basically discovers she's blind and tells her. And it's all about her finding her sight again, and she finds her sight uh, at the end. It's an incredibly transparent and beautiful score. It's the opera that came right after The Queen of Spades, and The Queen of Spades is quite a heavy, it's a hard-hitting, hard-punching score. Um, but there's a lightness and a beauty in Yolanta that I think was a lot to do with Tchaikovsky's life at the time. He was 53 years old, and he was really looking to, he wrote to his brother, Modeste, who, who did the libretto. He was looking, he kept saying, I just want to love the person I love. I don't want to be told by society how to live my life. I don't mm. want to be forced into anything. Why can't I just be me? And that's kind of the, you know, the parallel with Yolanta, this young girl from darkness and ignorance regaining her sight. So what we're doing with it is it's a very, um, it's sort of set in the late 1930s, um, but it's rather an abstract setting is what we've done with it. So it, it just kind of shifts the whole time. I guess it's a little bit like a video game, I suppose, <laughs> is we keep shifting it. And we're using lots of video in it. Um, like when she gets her sight back, there's a huge big video moment, um, which we rehearsed today and was hilarious because I explained to the cast there's a big video moment and everybody was just staring. <laughs> at Catherine Weber. <laughs> what does that no mean? No video was appearing. And they all looked at me. I'm like, yeah, we got to use our imagination. So, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a very beautiful opera. And again, it's a story of y everybody's young in the piece. Only King Rene is older. Well, we're gonna listen to the final chorus from Yolanta as we uh, play out this segment. We want to thank you, Paul, for yeah, thank you so coming much. to the studio. I know you just like are. So busy at COT, you came all the way to Evanston uh, to be part of the show. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I'm yeah. very happy. I'm very happy you boys are spreading the word. Yeah. I hope I behave myself. I was told, <laughs> by the way, ladies and gentlemen, not to curse. <laughs> and then the first thing they really mentioned are balls and I things. I, mean, really? <laughs> I know it's a sports program, but really? You can't hold us all responsible for Oliver. I mean... <laughs> Uh, well, once again, Chicago Opera Theater's production of Tchaikovsky's Iolanta will open on November 10th. You can buy your tickets at cot.org. Once again, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for taking along, Oliver. You helped You're out welcome. real good. My pleasure. I'm driving him home. All right, we're <laughs> going to have a play us out with this little bit of Iolanta. <laughs>
Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. And by that music, you've no doubt guessed that this is time for the Halloween Spooktacular. Nothing says opera like a Bach organ. I mean, I mean, we have to. Yeah, I mean, it's they did the Bach. They did the Bach prelude. The Bach prelude. That's essentially yes. I I am very disappointed that Bach never did any operas because you know we could use more of his stuff for, for for creepy moments like this. But it's okay because each of us has brought to the table a scary. Uh, but we should uh, talk about this. No, yes. go ahead. Oh, you, you're talking We, we each ahead. brought to the table a scary opera scene Ooh. or something that is. How how did we define it? I think that we each <laughs> defined it differently, which is actually. kind of fun. <laughs> Looking at the clip, so I think let's just dive right in. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, my contribution to the spooktacular is a really odd little opera uh, called Orfe Fifty Three that neither matter I knew. Oh yeah, this which one, is saying something. This one is real obscure. Uh, this is by uh, a composer named uh, Pierre Schaefer, um, and Pierre Henry assisted him with it. Um, Pierre Schaefer, if you are a a hardcore music nerd uh, you might know is uh, a very early pioneer in electronic music particularly musique concrète which is all uh, which is a french movement all about putting in these sort of these this early sampling if you will taking sounds from the real real world these odd orchestral sounds manipulating them uh, turning them upside down playing them backwards and creating music out of them so he was very on uh, on the cutting edge of uh, the avant-garde. As a matter of fact, he's, uh, he's considered to be the first composer to use uh, magnetic tape um, rather than just, you know, shellac records to create this electronic music. Now, a lot of his uh, works up till, the, uh, up till 1953 had been a little bit sort of, uh, you know, a little bit odd, a little bit experimental, a little bit tongue-in-cheek even. But uh, Orfe 53, uh, and I pr- it probably should be in French. What's 53 in French? Cinquante-trois, obviously. Cinquante-trois. Cinquante-trois. I only know English and occasionally German if I'm if I'm uh, feeling uh, gutsy. Um, but uh, Orphe Cinquante-trois is uh, based uh, sort of nominally around uh, Gluck's uh, Orpheus uh, in Eurydice, um, uh, and of course it's in the long tradition of operas. Whenever someone wants to do something new and weird, they're just like, well, let's do it with Orpheus first. You got Orfeo, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Anyway. Uh, it's, a, it's an easy groundbreaker. It, it know, really an is. An icebreaker. It really is. And uh, this was uh, this one is sort of complete, different from anything he had done before. 
Uh, if you listen to his early works, they're very experimental, kind of small scale, uh, very almost humorous in the way they play around with sounds. Um, but this one really kind of goes for it and really finds the dramatic potential of electronic music. Now, the reason neither of you have heard of this um, is because it premiered uh, in Donaushingen in 1953, 53, that's the name. There um, we go. Uh, and uh, I believe this is the only recording that exists of it. I don't even think it's complete. Uh, I can't, I, it's hard enough, it's hard to find information about this opera to really confirm these things. But I can say that it includes live voice, harpsichord, um, uh, and lots and lots of magnetic tape. A classic orchestration. Classic orchestration. Now, I do want to say a lot of uh, people kind of poo-poo early electronic music in particular as being like, oh, here's a bunch of weird sounds. We're going to press play and then just stand back and listen to the weird sounds. No, uh, the, Pierre Schaefer, um, in contrast to... Uh, Electric composers like Varez, uh, uh, for example, um, was really all about uh, taking the performance aspect to every uh, every level. So you have electronic tape. Uh, it, the volume is dependent on a person playing, uh, pushing the play button. They get to choose uh, volume. They get to uh, shift it all around. So that there's this. There is a performer for the tape as well, which also leads to some interesting flaws in the tape. <laughs> Here and there, um, and uh, because this was uh, off of a radio broadcast in 1953, it's kind of hard to tell what's live and what's not, which kind of adds to the overall allure, I think. But because this is, you know, Orpheus, Weston, scare me. Oh, let's I, give I'm, it. Let's I'm going to scare you. This uh, obviously, if you don't know the Orpheus myth, he goes down to the underworld, and he's down in the underworld, Can and he's this. discussing it. There's spoken word. There's creepy sounds. Uh, you'll love it. Here we go. I like the most about this opera is that if you ever like have to do a haunted house, you can just play this opera in the background. The entire, and it's entirely it. appropriate. A anyone who has watched Twin Peaks will recognize <laughs> that this sounds like the Black Lodge. All of this is taking place in the Black Lodge. <laughs> you eat at I know me, what my David thought Lynch. was. Could you imagine 
somewhere listening live to this show, someone's driving in the dark, <laughs> and they, they maybe weren't prepared for that. <laughs> and that was what was on their dial in their like, car. I'm gonna be and honest. Just, I knew it was gonna be something in that vein, but I was not prepared for that. I love the, I love this opera so much, and I I don't think it's I, I don't think it's ever ever done. I don't know. If, you probably need the original tapes. I'm not sure if all of them even exist anymore. Um, but uh, if uh, if anyone has if anyone finds them laying around, why don't we we can do a revival? It'll be great. I, we could do it on Opera Box. Can we just <laughs> it. I mean, I, it'll be actually, like the War of the Worlds, the uh, the Orson Welles War, War of the Worlds. <laughs> But that did kind of feel like an underworld type of... It did. And I think the remarkable thing about it is that it makes so much sense. I mean, it's it's really sort of... I mean, Like, for example, this is one of the reasons I like Alban Berg's music. You know, he's using this serialism and atonality, but it's always perfectly appropriate for the story going on. Mm -hmm. And this kind of sound is perfectly appropriate for the underworld sort of scary, yeah. um, you know, and... But it's even almost romantic, even. There's this strangely tonal stuff in the orchestra sort of undulating in the background, and I, I just love this sure. piece. Why don't we take it into a completely so. different direction? <laughs> Tobias? <laughs> so I'm glad that we didn't actually have a discussion before picking these things. It was, like, spooktacular. And I'm like, hmm, what's a scary moment in opera? And I remember the first time that I saw this opera mm. and this particular scene, I was like, holy crap. The statue came to life, and it's this is the this is Don Giovanni Mozart. Um, also, I'm pretty sure Don Giovanni premiered on this day, like uh, two hundred some years ago. Can uh, we well, a tweet at us? Can we can yeah. we Google that? Let's Google, Google that. Anyway, Google so it. this is this is the commendatory scene um, at the end of Don Giovanni, and if it's. Let, let me say, I'm really glad it we did, all went actually. with. That was correct. October 29th. Oh, perfect. is it really? Let's go. Perfect. Let's just listen Look to it. You. Here we go.
you gotta love Kurt Mole. Oh, he's incredible. Yes, it's, oh. So what I think is creepy about this, or the spooktacular. I mean, so the synopsis of this story is ridiculous, and there's no way for me to, like, in the next ten minutes, accurately <laughs> say, what has Don Giovanni brought? But Don Giovanni killed the Commendatore, uh, the father of Don Anna. And uh, I think there's a little, I think it's actually kind of hilarious, actually, um, that Achen Arteco, <laughs> when he shows up and he knocks on the door, he's like, hey, remember when you invited me to dinner? <laughs> I'm here. Let's eat. And then he drags him to the underworld. Oh, yeah. And then, and then you hear that music happening right after that. But, I mean, could you imagine that this statue, I don't know. No, you can't imagine. And it's supernatural. <laughs> um, the music's dark, and the sound of the bass voice calmly announces his presence. And, and acceptance of Giovanni's invitation to dine is rather haunting. That's what I wrote. Um, that that entire scene, I think, is probably my favorite scene out of Mozart's entire output. Really? Oh, I love it. It's, I think there's some great, hilarious moments in Mozart. Yeah. But, like, dramatically, I mean, that's a pretty... The, the music got so dark there, and I think, like, the theatrical sound of the music... Oh, yeah, absolutely. ...is something that doesn't always come through with Mozart's operas in my yeah. opinion yeah that wasn't just grace and elegance right there no. that was that was real fire and brimstone yeah right, right down to the middle of hell um all right now we got about well, two a two in the sort of shelf of horrors as it were matt take us home with number three so i took us in a completely different direction because Ooh. both of yours had a lot of noise and mine actually has a lot of <laughs> emptiness and oh. that is because i've picked uh the just like your heart exactly <laughs> for the spooktacular i've picked part of the um Part of the famous cadenza from the mad scene of Lucia de Lammermoor. Oh, yeah. And this happens right after she has gone crazy out of guilt for abandoning her lover and mar marrying someone else, stabbed him to death. She is usually do. running all over the stage, dressed in a nightgown, dripping with blood, as she was in this production as well. Uh, let's listen to a clip of um, uh, of Lisette Oropesa doing this in the Teatro Real and her special friend who will be playing with her. Not the flute as is commonly done, but the glass Ooh, harmonica. The spookiest Ooh. instrument.
so I know what you're thinking. Belcato Cadenza, not usually scary. <laughs> I mean, usually scary for the singer, but not typically that scary for the Wait, audience. Wait, I kind of loved that sound. Yeah. So I love it. That is the original instrument that Donizetti wrote to, to score the mad scene. Uh, there's a lot of study that suggests he didn't actually write that cadenza, but it was cobbled together from themes that he wrote earlier in the opera for mm. um, Nellie Melba, I want to say. Uh, oh. but, and the, but the original... The, the director of the opera company didn't want didn't have a glass harmonica, so it was switched to flutes. But recently, in the last you know thirty or forty years, it's become common to put the glass harmonica back in when you're working at a theater that has those resources. Because I mean, come on, that is spooky. It is. It. It. it every time I hear that with the original with the real glass harmonica, it's like it. It. it it just changes the entire scene completely. It really, it's its crazy in every sense of the word. And if you're talking about it, you know, historically, because historically this would have had a really big impact because the glass harmonica Absolutely. was an instrument that people were really suspicious of. There were a lot of <laughs> theories that listening to it would drive you crazy or, or send you into melancholy or playing it. Uh, it 100% sounds like ghosts. Famously, uh, Marie Antoinette studied the may may or may not have been studied. This, this could be a rumor, but she she might have studied the glass harmonica with uh, Doctor Franz Mesmer, whose name oh, is right. the source of the word mesmerize, because he uh, did a lot of be he believed and wrote a lot of the these ideas that turned into hypnotism. Uh, so. On top of that, to have those wide open spaces where you are just a wide-eyed girl sitting on the stage in complete silence with everyone staring at you. Drenched in blood, usually. That's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. So I would like to come down on the side of spooky. That's what you call a nightmare? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this took a turn. This took a dark turn. Okay, I'm pretty sure the scariest person in the room is now Toby. <laughs> and on that note, Toby wins. We're going to move on as quickly as possible. Maybe you can explain what the hell Tilda Swinton is doing mixing dogs and opera. I certainly can't. That's next in America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines from Opera Land, everything you need to know in less than two minutes. According to a recent New York Times article, Hungary's increasingly autocratic right-wing government is investing heavily in its state opera as a, quote, temple of national culture. The Hungarian state opera has recently been criticized for a production of Porgy and Bess with all-white singers and the cancellation of a musical Billy Elliot after a conservative newspaper called the show Gay Propaganda. 
Tenor Michael Fabiano posted on social media over the weekend that he married, quote, the love of my life, Brian McAllister. The ceremony was at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Congratulations, Michael Fabiano. Playing the title character in San Francisco's uh, San Francisco Opera's current production of Puccini's Tosca is Carmen Gianasotto, who has often been called the Lady Gaga of opera. Quote, she's got star power and she knows how to use it, says the San Francisco Chronicle. Actress and director Tilda Swinton has released a new video project which, which appears to be a mix of tragic opera and videos of frolicking dogs on vacation. That's different from the music video of countertenor Anthony Roth Costanza singing an ar aria from Handel's Flavio that was co-directed by Tilda Swinton. The latest video features Swinton's Springer Spaniels romping on a Scottish beach. And on this day, October 29th, it was the premiere of The Devil's Wall by Beatrix Smetana in Prague in 1882, and today's the anniversary of the death of Italian tenor Franco Corelli in 2003. And that is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's right. You're listening to Opera Box Score, and Toby, I'm sure you're very sad Wait, at that last I was going to tell George that Smetna is maybe not the most important composer <laughs> to have an opera premiere today. I, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I brought up the Don Giovanni. I was like, wait, what? Also, Corelli. Corelli. I know. I, I saw that tear just roll down your uh, You know, face. I mentioned to Matt earlier today. I was like, oh, I guess we're going to have to play some Corelli clips on the show. And he said, you're obsessed. And I was like, and? <laughs> he's not spooky he's not spooky you know who is spooky tilda swinton yeah what was that video about <laughs> I, okay you should absolutely watch it i'm sure i'm sure george uh will post it on our website um it's it's, it's like it, these it doesn't her need dogs, to be watched her dogs are running in slow motion to handle on a beach and it's beautiful and kind of well shot but you're like the entire time you're looking at it wondering why why she is fascinating <laughs> she is one of the most it's true. Unusual people in the world, probably. Definitely in the public <laughs> sphere. But, like, in watching that video, which I didn't watch all six minutes of it, I watched about four and a half <laughs> and then was furious because I was like, crap, I never get those four and a half minutes back. But, like, <laughs> it is well shot and well done, but, like, what are you doing? Ah, those uh, those dogs are so well choreographed. Yeah, they that do. That was what I was job. thinking. I'm I, like, I, of course she's a dog trainer, I've too. said this a million times. If there's one thing that opera needs, it's more cute animal videos. And I will take have that you, to my have grave. Have you said that a million I, times? I've said it a million listen. times. Uh, well, one of those times is just now. And, I'll, and you just need to catch up on the other 999,999. Um, yeah, but uh, more serious news, perhaps. Uh, Slightly spookier than Tilda Swinton <laughs> is white nationalism. <laughs> and, and, so and, true. And we pivot. <laughs> And uh, we pivot. What a great From puppies on a beach to Hungary's what did it what it uh, what do they call it? Hungary's increasingly autocratic right wing government. Yeah. They, well, this is this is obviously Trump, Trump before Trump. Yeah, that's 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 what they call their leader over there. It's a, it's a this is a thing that we have been seeing. Uh, this is not necessarily a recent phenomenon uh, because I mean when I read this I'm just like oh by right in the 1930s okay that's exactly well, what that is. I think we let's talk about the pros. The pros here. That the government is investing heavily in its art. Oh yeah, the uh, um, the con but, is that but, it's but, using it as an instrument to, for uh, you know. We're not there yet. Racism. <laughs> um, yeah, this was an interesting article to read. But they're investing you know tremendous amounts of resources into building new theaters, into promoting this art form, into growing it, into touring it. 
I would I disagree I disagree with you that that's actually promoting the art form. I know what you're saying. They are they're investing in the art form, but they're investing in a really specific version of that's it. That's a good point. Which is not, not which is not actually promoting the best interest of it right. because they're using it as a like as a nationalist cudgel to yeah, exclude definitely. people from from the audience. Well, the, so there's the, there was the cancellation of the Billy Elliot because it was uh, a newspaper said it was gay propaganda. Yeah, it was uh, the the accusation was that it was convincing people to uh, turn gay, and that that was a problem. Because that's how that's how homosexuality the, the, works. Well, and, and then of course the this according the, to Hunger, even how they're, Billy Elliot works. It's defense, not. That's the go their ahead. defense was was not uh, was like oh it was, it was the defense was hilarious and how terrible it was it, they were just saying like oh we're we're, we're not homophobic uh, uh our our population is shrinking and so if more people are gay then our population is going to go down like oh yeah way to cover yourselves guys and the whole this, thing this is mess do we think that when they tour um at the lincoln center that there will be backlash do th- enough people hmm. even know i i think that there might be be because of what happened when uh, Gergiev conducted opening night at the Met a couple of years ago, right, which was right. right around the time that Russia started passing all of those uh, anti-gay laws, there were protests and and uh, including a vocal one right before the curtain. Who had to? I believe there was a there was someone who shouted something and had to be escorted from the house uh, in right. protest of Gergiev. And there and there has been increased pressure of uh, of people who are close to him. Netrebko specifically has been asked in interviews about him. And I wouldn't uh, about him and about whether or not she condones his opinions and the and the political causes that he mm-hmm. stands for. Uh, and I, I mean, obviously Russia is a different sort of geopolitical player than Hungary. I, it's it's similar in many ways. I mean, uh, this is a problem all throughout Europe, uh, particularly when you come come across what we consider sort of the the higher art forms, usually European art forms. That you know, opera is European. It was created in Europe, and. Uh, Oftentimes, it makes a lot of sense to sort of break down uh, one type of opera as coming from a national identity. Like, for example, Russian opera does sound distinctively Russian, and there's a lot of stuff that that comes out of Russian opera that's very good that is um, inherently Russian in how it, it is put across, uh, and the same for Hungary. Uh, um, but the, there is a sort of a line there where you cross uh, over from that sort of, you know, comfortable sort of national civic pride to full on um full on this is superior and uh if you are not of this uh particular culture or this or or racial background you are not welcome to be part of it uh and that is a very uh this is a problem that we're seeing not just in uh, opera but across all of european art forms uh, and even in the u.s obviously um and it's just like, the, why, why can't, why does it take uh, a right-wing autocratic government to fund your opera companies, people? I mean, this, this is. <laughs> well, it's always been, that's, in this particular case, it's always been the state opera. Right. And so it always has been funded by the government. But to, I mean, what, what, what can you say? What do we think on this show? You know, we, we want to share the good news of opera, and we believe our art form to be inclusive and accepting. And this flies in the face of that. And it's a company that is, you know, one of the busiest companies now in the world, according to this article. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is you know, the same sort of problem. You know, I, I've had this debate, you know, every day of my life with Wagner, you know, whenever I'm listening to uh, Tristan and, you know, Tannhäuser, and, and he was just... 
in many respects, an awful person, and he would not In most have, respects. In, mo- in all respects, really. Uh, but uh, he, there, there's, there's some sort of uh, point where you can't separate, you know, it's like the art from the artist, and the people are putting on the art, and the people who are funding the art, and it's a big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is obviously potential there. I mean, obviously, there's potential there to be inclusive, to really work to better humanity and not divide it into these little arbitrary groups of us versus them and these racial makeups and the these gender inequalities there 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 that stuff is all there but uh, there is something there too that we have to consider the, this sort of darkness that leads um these these governments well, and these people to kind of also make it their own any I don't know how to really articulate this I, we try not to get too political on this show which I appreciate but <laughs> Any but. leader or government that tries to instill fear of difference mm-hmm. or uh, fear of intrusion and not accepting that is that's a that's not actually leadership and not act, and not acting in the best interest of anyone of anyone and that's not acting in the best interest of your country of your relations uh, with the rest of the world and it's ultimately and anyone who's trying to isolate. Or become an isolationist. I mean, that's that's intensely dangerous. And any um, and any art that you come across that uh, you force that viewpoint on becomes lesser because of that viewpoint yeah. that you hold. That that divisive. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm glad we brought it down to this level. What a great well, no. number you guys. It's good, it's good <laughs> to talk about. It's good to talk about, and it gives us. I mean, I we have a government and a president who tried to in his first year of office, try to get rid of the National Endowment of the Arts. Right. And would you rather that happen or have someone control the arts and say, but also you can't do this? And to that point, you know, if you're trying to, like, change societal norms and say that homosexuality, like cancel Billy Elliot because it promotes homosexuality, don't do Lobo M and talk to me about infidelity like right. and, and premarital uh, sex. And their next their theme for their next season is Christianity. Man, GTFO with that stuff, the hypocrisy. I don't want to be, like, yeah. I don't want to, sorry. That's what it's all about. I'm tired and cranky on a Monday, and I don't have <laughs> it's, patience it's for a, this It's a lot of, of hypocrisy, a lot of stuff that needs to end. And uh, speaking of things ending, it's about time to wrap up the show. <laughs> Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. How'd you like my segue there? I that was, was great. Really I thought it was really good. That was really it was good. Spookily good. <laughs> oh, Halloween. Any plans? Uh, good, good calls for Halloween coming up, either I'm, of you? I mean, my bad calls that I'm going to have to stop saying spooky. Spooky. Oh, that is a real bad call. Um, I'm going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show tomorrow. Oh, nice. That's so, going to be real spooky. That'll be kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, the, I think the scariest thing of all, sitting through Siegfried, is coming up. Uh, when are you for doing me. that? I'm seeing it on Saturday. I'm super yeah. pumped, super excited. I'm sure I'll have a Monday evening quarterback for you coming up next week on that. Um, and uh, yeah, that about does it for this week's show. That is it. Uh, the new, the new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. 
Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you stuff your face full of candy this week. We're back on Monday, November 5th at 9 p.m. Central. More opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. Thank you.